Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am honored to be sitting down today with a brilliant mind in the Bitcoin space. Mr. Max Hillebrand. And today we're going to be exploring, starting what's probably going to be a long exploration of the book Ethics of Liberty by Murray Rothbard. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Robert. I'm looking forward, as always, to our conversations. This is going to be a fun one. Yeah. I think most of my audience probably knows who you are. Maybe you could just give a brief introduction about yourself, your background. Uh, your relationship to Bitcoin, and then maybe a brief introduction to the book as well. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Uh, my background really is more in uh, economics and the, the science of entrepreneurship. Uh, that has always fascinated me for, for several reasons. Uh, just because I, as a young boy, I, I started out, you know, growing up as an entrepreneur, uh, needing to earn my money to, to spend on all those fancy things that I wanted to have. And then, then after realizing that, well, you actually need to work and sacrifice in order to have capital that you can spend on all the fancy leisure goods that you would like. Uh, and that was a very valuable lesson to learn at, at first. And then, of course, once you realize that there is a cost, well, then you want to be as efficient as possible in, in well, allocating your resources. Right. So this was why economics was always very interesting to me. Uh, at, at first, then I found, you know, the Keynesian mainstream bullshit, <laughs> and that quickly turned out to be a very, well, inadequate description of the problems that I was facing. Uh, and that led me to try to seek alternative ways of answering economic questions. And here, of course, the, the Austrian school and praxeology is uh, first and foremost, and that's what I found very appreciative and uh, that was even before discovering Bitcoin. So I, I was aware of the problem uh, and the, the magnitude of the problem uh, and then was looking for solutions to the problem of money. Uh, and then discovering Bitcoin is, of course, a great relief. <laughs> and, uh, you know, ever since then, I've been focusing more on trying to understand the nuances of the economics of this incredibly novel uh, monetary asset and also the technological aspect right and what it actually means to use these technologies 
uh, and not just to use them, but to help out in building them. Uh, so that's been quite a fun ride over these last years to help shape uh, these new technologies that we use, right? To to build the shovels, so to say, mm. for this new gold rush. Beautiful. Yeah, I, like you, I kind of discovered it wasn't Austrian economics for me. It was central banking. I just I went down the uh, creature from Jekyll Island rabbit hole prior to Bitcoin. Have been look had been looking for solutions ever since. Had somewhat given up, and until I found Bitcoin, and um, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> um, so again, we're talking about this book, "The Ethics of Liberty," by Murray Rothbard. Murray is a notable Austrian economist. Um, he is a student of Mises. Please correct me on any of this, by the way. But as I understand it, he's a student of Mises. American guy. Um, he wrote the book Man, Economy, and State, which I've heard is the next best thing to human action, which was written by Mises and is essentially, in my view, the Bible of Austrian economics. Uh, I have not read Man, Economy, and State. So actually, starting this conversation with you, you've encouraged me to jump in and read more Rothbard. And um, he's got a way with words, to say the least. Oh, he does. Yeah. Um, Maybe we could start if you could either uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about the book and we could start with a definition that I think is foreign to most people outside of the Austrian school, which is praxeology. Yeah, this this book really is a monumental treatise. Uh, Murray liked writing those, these really long form books, you know, that start with a description of the methodological approach. Uh, a description of the the axioms, the, the fundamental starting point, and then a, a building a monumental construct with mainly logical, uh, verbal, deductive reasoning uh, on top of that. And something like man, economy, and state really sets out very similar to human action to bring this well entire treatise of way of economic thought uh, into light. And it's extremely broad in its consequences to explain the logic of human action, right? This is what praxeology means. And uh, what it basically seeks to explain is, well, the human condition. And what, what does it mean for humans to act? Uh, that's in the word of the science itself, right? And here is, for one, it entails individual existence, right? And this is one of the starting differentiations in, for example, the methodology of praxeology to other schools of thought. Uh, this was famous in the Methodenstreit among Eugen von Böhmberg, uh, Ludwig von Mises, uh, and others, uh, to state that economics is fundamentally an individualistic science, hmm. right? and uh, that the individual is the proper unit of analysis for economic problems, which is very much not a mainstream view. Right? The mainstream is very much that one of a collective one, where the, the starting axiom is, is a group, right? and aggregated numbers are the methodology used. Yeah. Uh, so praxeology is, is an analysis of the individual problem, Right, with the individual as a starting point, and 
then it's not just that the individual exists, but it's that he is in a state of uneasiness, as Ludwig van Mises put it. Right? Basically, you have a bunch of problems. Uh, there are, well, you're hungry, <laughs> for example, mm. uh, and it's cold and raining, and there are a bunch of weird men with, with swords after you. Right, So there are a yeah. lot of problems to be solved, and now you need to figure out easy solutions uh, to them. Um, but that's already the, the genius part of the entrepreneur is that you live in this miserable place right now and you have many, but you still have the genius to envision a potential of a future that is less miserable than it is right now. Right? You can think of not just one, but of numerous scenarios that would improve your situation. And, and one of Karl Menger's original insight in subjective theory of value is that the individual himself can now rank order each of these potential scenarios uh, so that you can establish the most important thing to be doing right now. Right? The thing that will give you the most value, the most utility, so to say, marginally more than any other thing. Right? And this is ultimately what the individual chooses to act upon. Mm. Right? It's, it's to manifest that solution to the most difficult problem in the most elegant way. Mm. And that is somewhat of the, the individual trade-off that goes into contemplating every possible action. Mm. Right? And praxeology is now to analyze the consequences uh, of these actions, uh, so to say, uh, and not just for the consequences of one individual human action, but instead even of a uh, of a society, of an economy, of a free market, of a vast, uncountable number of individuals collaborating in utmost complex, well, networks, yeah. uh, that this still uh, works and shows how, well, the, the governing consequences, so to say. Uh, that in and of itself is praxeology. And economics is one small part of praxeology. And for example, it was very well outlined in human action and man, economy, and state. Uh, and this is now the major contribution of this specific book, uh, Ethics of Liberty, is that Murray Rothbard did what his master thought was impossible. Um, because economics is per se a wertfreie analysis, a value-free economics. Mm. Right? It's not like psychology, which talks about what people value. Right or what they should value somewhat is, is ethics, but rather economics tells about the consequences of human action. Right, mm -hmm. so it's not about which ends you should choose, but it's about what will, what are the means necessary in order to reach your end. Uh, that's more the question of economics answers, and ethics is always a very different thing. And Mises thought that ethics cannot be explained with a priori reasoning. Uh, as praxeology is, right? To start with that fundamental axiom that humans act and, and deduce from there. But what Murray Rothbard lays out in this approach and later Hans-Hermann Hoppe uh, refines even more is the argumentation theory of ethics so that we can actually deduce the a, a rational, value-free ethics simply by the starting point of individual existence and action and only with deductive reasoning. Uh, this was thought to be not possible before this book, and only a crazy radical extremist like Murray Rothbard 
uh, Rothbard could have the courage uh, to speak up, uh, up these, these crazy ideas, so to say. Wow, that's a very powerful intro. Thank you for that. Um, so a couple of things here. One, you mentioned that Austrian economics takes the individual as its elementary particle, if you will, right? The individual is who acts, not the group necessarily, where Keynesian economics takes the inverse uh, approach. And in that scenario, it's we're actually putting group identity in a Keynesian situation, group identity above individual identity. And that le- that tends to lead to really bad outcomes. I think this other point that you bring up there is this it's scientific in the sense that it's becoming a value-free analysis, right? So it's trying to tell you about the actual consequences of human action. And I guess in the broadest patterns without telling you what specifically a human should do. So it's a science will tell you what is, whereas a religion or philosophy, I think I might be wrong here, will tell you what ought to be right. Or what you ought to do. So this is much more of a science in that sense. And then I was just wondering, could you, so you make the point too, that all action is essentially an expression of value. That it's a little bit confusing because we say it's human action is expressing value, but it's a science as a science is trying to be value free. Maybe you could just walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And it's, you know, that the original insight of Carl Menger was that the individual himself has the ability to construct this potential value differentiation, right? So what's the most valuable thing that you could possibly do? And this doesn't even necessarily have to happen consciously. And you don't even need to be able to kind of justify or, you know, prove all of these potential things in, uh, in your own individual preference scale. That's probably not even possible. But what we can do with, with a praxeological viewpoint is to look at an action after the fact that it happened. And we can observe certain things about this action, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that much of a future prediction of what would people like to have in the future or how are people going to act in the future, but rather it's more like, this is how a person acted. What does that mean? Like, what Mm -hmm. does that tell us about the value proposition of, uh, of that person? And also classical example, uh, you have, uh, you know, an individual with the, with the choice on the table, he has either, you know, a, a loaf of bread with some soy in the middle <laughs> or a delicious ribeye steak, right? Now, the question is, which of those two do you prefer? And we don't have to uh, debate about some psychology of, you know, maybe you're, you're, I don't know, you had a dramatic encounter with soy when you were a child or something. Um, There might be numerous reasons why you would prefer the one over the other. But ultimately, when you as a free individual walk up to that table and eat the ribeye steak, well, that is a proof that you prefer ribeye steak Mm. marginally over a soy burger. And at the very least, that's what we can say. I don't know why you love the steak more than the burger. That's Mm. again, the realm of psychology. Um, But I know that at least you value it more than the other thing. And so that's that's the kind of observatory uh, statement of values. And again, it's value-free because 
I'm not making a judgment whether it's good or bad to eat the steak, mm. right? I'm not applying my own valuations over your actions, so to say. Right. I'm simply stating that because you chose to eat the steak, it means that you valued it more than the banana. Mm. And that's just a logically correct sentence. That makes sense. So the action itself is an expression of the individual expressing his value, the value, valuing ribeye more than soy, for instance. But then the observation of that action is value free. And then we're just saying clearly he preferred the ribeye to the soy. So there's no subjectivity in that observation. Exactly. Yes. And one thing to consider as well is that the individual thinks a priori, right? Before the action, he before he takes the action, that he will prefer the steak to the banana. Mm. Right? Uh, because, well, maybe on, again, multiple reasons for that, his past experience and whatnot. But maybe it turns out, you know, that even though the steak looks great on the outside, it's actually rotten within, right? Or completely right. overcooked, right? Yeah. And then after eating the steak, you know, in hindsight, the person can say, oh, well, actually, I think I should have eaten the banana or the, or the burger, right? That yeah. was, that would have been more satisfactory for myself. Right. Uh, but well, that's, you know, an entrepreneurial error, so to say. You wanted to solve a problem, hunger, right? You th yeah. That was the end goal. And now you had different means at your disposals, right? Yes. A burger and a steak. And now you as the entrepreneur make the resource allocation of which means to utilize to reach your given ends yes. and and you thought that steak was better than banana but turned out that's not the case right that makes a lot of sense um the other the useful analogy i've heard put forth to you because this is takes kind of a shift in perspective to understand this is praxeology is more like euclidean geometry in a way where it just has these you know euclidean geometry has these five theorems or axioms from which it reasons all of its other, um, makes all of its other assertions that are then provable from those axioms. And it seems to me like at least ec the economics portion, I'm not sure if this applies to praxeology more generally, that it's similar, right? It's making these assertions, one of which is man must act, I think is a very important one. And then it just deduces from there, um, what would happen so it's not it's not empirical in the sense that you go out and make observations of all the men acting in the world to determine that man must act i mean i guess you technically are making it from observation um that's kind of a bad example actually the example i like from euclidean geometry is you know one of the theorems is two parallel lines never touch so you don't go out and prove that by observing all the parallel lines in nature you're kind of you're making an axiomatic assumption effectively and then from that assumption, you're building this, this worldview. Um, and it seems like praxeology is similar. Exactly. Yes. It's somewhat of setting boundaries out of the infinite uh, abyss, you know, of the unlimited mm -hmm. potential. Uh, you need to somehow uh, like set boundaries for the arena that you want to play in. Yes. And, and uh, Ludwig von Mises brings up in his great book, Theory and History, uh, which goes a lot into the epistemology and methodology of, of economics. He brings up, for example, that uh, you can look at a stone, right? And uh, that is uh, that's a, an object that you can observe, right? And you can even make predictions on its act, on its behavior, mm. right? Or on on you know, if you drop it from the air, it's going to fall down, and that's going to happen all the time, mm. the same, right? Because the the rock itself is an object, right? It's 
it's incredibly interesting. And just analyzing the, the physics of this is, is very important. And of course, many people do, but it's important to realize that it's just fundamentally different when we talk about falling stones mm -hmm. than when it is then we talk about acting humans. Mm. Right? One is this, this inanimate object that just reacts, so to say, or, or it, mm. it, it... Reflexive it behavior, I think they call it. Exactly. Yes. Right. And and with with humans, there is there is instead this this way that we can you know actually make rational decisions mm -hmm. and rational analysis on our problems and a a, a focused effort on alleviating them. Mm -hmm. Right. And when this is all of a sudden whole other game of analysis. Right. So to to say that we have our starting point of the conversation is that humans act, right? That mm -hmm. is a lot different conversation than to say stones fall when you drop them. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. There's, um, I think he just distinguishes between, again, this word action, it's very important to understand that there's a purpose or intention behind it, which is distinguished from the reflexive behavior in a human of, you know, the doctor hits your knee with a hammer and your leg kicks out. There's not really an intention or purpose behind that. It's just reflexive. Uh, I guess we could say that the falling of the stone is somewhat of a reflexive behavior too. It just, it always plays out that way. Um, so that gets us into one extremely important concept underlying really all freedoms in the world um, is this concept of property. Uh, and people often think of property as something you know, like a piece of land or stock or something outside of themselves, which it it can be. I actually argue that property is the relationship between the the individual and the thing. But another another piece that most people are oblivious to is that you are your most personal property. You, your body, your time. Um, maybe you could walk us through through that concept of property. Yeah, I think that's that's so important to understand. And as you say, property goes as deep as the personal's own body and existence. So, mm -hmm. so why is that? Let's let's build a theory of property in the Rothbardian tradition, so to say. So, as we established, we start with the assumptions that humans act, right? So they exist, they have problems, they're suffering, uh, they can think of a better future, uh, and now, how uh, like. And now they can act in order to solve their problems, right? So, for example, when you're hungry, you can walk over the table, right, and pick up some food and eat it, right? And but what does that actually mean? It basically means that your your spirit, so to say, uh, is maneuvering your physical body, right? That vessel in meat space, so to say, you can control and manipulate. You as the individual have a use an exclusive use, uh, even an exclusive power to use, right? So that nobody else but you uh, can, in fact, move your, you know, your arms and uh, control that body. Um, but one interesting thing is that this is now a potential conflict of ownership, right? Because if you are the only one that can control this body, well, that means that other people cannot Right? And they might not be happy that you don't do what you want, what they want you to do. Mm. And so this potential of conflict uh, means that we need to somehow figure out a solution. Uh, 
right? And it, this goes not as far as the control over the scarce resource over your body, right? That uh, the there are other very many important scarce resources, right? Your food, for example, the land that you stand on, right? The clothes that you wear, the tools that you use to to solve your problems. There are many scarce resources which have this exclusivity of ownership. Mm. Right, so that only one individual can use the scarce resource in his problem-solving process of resource allocation. And because only one person can use it, and because there are not enough total quantity of that good available for everyone to enjoy the use, right, that is what makes it scarce, What uh, that puts these goods into a potential conflict. Mm. And whenever two people have a conflict over something, Right? We need to find a problem resolution um, at, to this. And there are, uh, as Rothbard lays out, only three potential options to consider in the question of who can use these scarce resources that are at our disposal. Right? Um, the, the first solution is that, well, nobody uh, or, or rather everybody can use these scarce resources, right? So that mm. for Whenever someone wants to use anything, we need to come to a complete collective consensus, you know, that this person gets to, you know, eat the steak. Mm. Um, that might, in theory, be maybe possible. I'm not sure, considering the speed of light, <laughs> so <laughs> probably not. Uh, but it, at least in practice, it's very much impossible mm -hmm. to find consensus over any large number of groups, at least, you know, 8 billion for mm -hmm. everything, for everything, for every allocation so, of every scarce resource. That would so be just, everyone voting for everyone else's action all the time. Exactly. That's lot, like it, That's just not how the work works, right? Yeah. It's, it's, that's just not true. It's not accurate. Yes. Uh, so the, the second option is, is that some select group of individual gets to decide about the resources uh, and other people do not. Mm -hmm. right? So this is the classical master and slave relationship. Mm -hmm. right? The master owns the property in the body of the slave. Mm -hmm. And he gets to keep the fruits of the labor of whatever the slave focuses his energy on. Mm -hmm. right? um, uh, and this fails uh, because, as Rothbard points out, what we want to find here uh, is a universal ethic, right? a, a, a natural law ethic, something that is uh, um, universal and applies for every man equally. Right? That is required for a universal rational ethic to be to be reasonable um and this fails on that front right if you have some masters uh, taking the stuff from others that's not equal rights for everyone so it mm -hmm. kind of uh, falls out from our level of analysis as well uh, there are in more detailed analysis numerous problems with socialism like this especially calculating in a complex market economy mm -hmm. uh, becomes impossible without property rights and free exchange and prices but right. That's a more in-depth argument later. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, so the, the, the final answer to the question of who can control these resources, well, is every sovereign individual uh, by himself can allocate those scarce resources that he has justly acquired, mm -hmm. as Rothbard points out in this book multiple times. And justly acquired is essential here, right? So there are two ways where an individual can justly acquire property according mm -hmm. to this option. Uh, the first is by homesteading, uh, basically by finding uh, uh, abundant, scarce resources available in nature mm -hmm. and by being the first individual to actively use them and to claim them. 
Mm. And so the obvious example would be you walk in a, in a public forest and there is an, a tree with some apple and you just take it and eat it. There's nobody else that would like to eat it. Right? So you can just eat it. There's mm -hmm. nobody else to make a claim. Right? Um, it, or for example, with your body right? to be a bit even more fundamental. Uh, these are a bunch of atoms that were growing in the womb of your mother and somehow your consciousness stumbles into that bodily vessel mm -hmm. and you're the only one to use it. Right? So that's that gives you uh, kind of some homesteading, at least of your body at the mm -hmm. point of birth, uh, arguably even before. Um, and that is, uh, uh, that's the first way to acquire just property by being the first one to use it, right? By, as, as Jordan Peterson would say, by venturing out into the unknown chaos and uncertainty of the future or in, uh, of nature, right? Mm -hmm. and, and taming that, uh, placing this into a border that you have defined, a, a map that you've created, and by using these natural given resources to solve your problems. Mm. Right? That, that is a way to acquire the property. Uh, and the, the other way to do that is if, not, if it was not you to have homesteaded these unused resources, uh, but someone else, and he mm. has voluntarily given up those resources that he has homesteaded mm. for you. Right? And as, as long as that uh, handing over of the, the, the right to use these scarce resources in a, a productive uh, exchange economy, um, that's, that's important. And now this is finally where I can answer your great question of what is property, right? to define that. Mm. Property is not the scarce resource itself. Property is a, a legal framework over who can who has the right to mm. use a certain scarce resource mm -hmm. um, and who has not the right who is excluded from the legal right to use a certain resource uh, and this is fundamentally a somewhat of a social construct right mm -hmm. because uh, it it is conflict theory and conflict only arises among individuals mm. arguably at least on on the level of analysis here Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, even you are made up of a group of individuals across time, at least, mm -hmm. and there is rivalry across that level of analysis as well. Mm. Uh, but for for the the legal framework, what we're interested here is is conflict among multiple individuals over where to and how to use scarce resources, and property rights are now um, alienable rights to use scarce resources. So. When you have the property right title in a certain scarce resources, mm -hmm. it means that you can control how to use it. Mm -hmm. But this is not an unalienable right like your free will, mm -hmm. but rather an alienable right that you can give away to others. Right? I can sacrifice my consumption of the stake by instead giving the property right of how to choose uh, uh, where to use that stake to rob. Right? And uh, then Rob goes and eats the stake himself because he has acquired the property right title to choose where to allocate these scarce resources. And so what happens in, in free exchange amongst individuals, it's not that we physically you know, exchange goods and services at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's not about the actual meat space transfer. Right. It's more about that social construct over who has actually the right to use these resources. The transfer of titles. Yeah. Exactly, the transfer yeah. of titles. That's what makes property rights such a, a massive innovation right. because it, it, it just you know, gives this 
yeah, this, this, this way to exchange much more easier, not reliant only on possession, but yes. more on a social construct of ownership. Right. And so the, the alienability then is essentially the exchange ability, right? You can't trade away your free will, but you can trade away your ribeye. And that's sort of at the basis of the efficiency gains capitalism produces, right? That is the division of labor that we can trade these fruits of labor and create more output per unit of input. That's why it's a um, it's an effective resource strategy, effectively, when adhered to. But the the issue here, and I, this is a very deep topic. So the property itself, unless it's a pure, really, it's it comes down to its defensibility almost. Can you defend the asset? If you cannot personally defend it, if it's not a bare asset that you can individually command and control, then you're dependent on the security framework, the physical security framework in your area, right? And the legal system that's attached to it. So property, most property then always, and I'm going to lay all this out and then please come back and correct anything I'm saying wrong here, but most property then is dependent upon the local monopoly on violence, right? So that if anyone transgresses against that relationship between you and the property, you have recourse to the legal system or to force to correct that transgression. But the problem here, at least in my view of history, is that, okay, so there's the local monopoly on violence. Its express purpose is really to preserve peace and property, right? Life, liberty, property, essentially. That's what government's function is. But because it's a monop, it's in a monopolist position, it always charges monopoly prices over time or long enough time scales. So taxes and or inflation tend to always increase. And when you hit a 100% tax rate, you are a slave. That's what it is. So more, you could define a slave as someone taxed at 100%, right? All of their property is going to someone else. Effectively, all of the fruit of their labor is taxed at 100%. So anywhere you are on that gradient, you're just moving towards slavery, effectively. So is property then everything outside of bare assets is premised on this logic of violence in a way? Am I thinking about that correctly? I think it's it's down the right alley in, in a couple of aspects, right? So, um, but one important thing to highlight is that property rights exists even, or disregarding if there is a mafia or a, a politicized group of, of violence, uh, like a gang of thieves writ large, as Murray Rothbard would like to say, right? property rights exist for the isolated individual, Robinson Crusoe on the Lonely Island, and even at that level of analysis, property rights exist. Right? Mm -hmm. They they are non-man-made, uh, immutable, uh, and, and and unescapable. Right? Con conditions that govern the behavior of of human action, so to say. Um, so this is a, a very much of a natural law type of negativist approach, rather than a man-made positivist approach. Right? So uh, uh, positivism, and this is again uh, the 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 basis of the Methodenstreit in, uh, in, in the 18th, 19th century. Uh, but basically positivism would say that, again, a group of individuals can, can decree what is morally right to do. Right? That, uh, that, uh, and this degree can be made different for different people in that 
uh, economy, right? So some people can get privileged rights that other people don't have. Mm-hmm. And those privileged rights are handed out by the ruling class, right? So here rights are granted uh, by the masters, so to say. Um, and that is very, very different to the natural law ethics that Rothbard describes in this book, right? That, uh, that are again, non-man-made, right? Mm-hmm. They, they are not created, they, these are not rules created by men in a social construct, so to say. This is more that humans can discover these laws uh, just the way that they can discover Euclidean uh, um, uh, geometry or, or gravity, mm. right? That um, they, they are ob- objective in the sense that they don't change for individuals across space or time, right? Gravity was the same 100 years ago in Paris as it is today in the United States, right? It's, right. Uh, it's the same always, and it doesn't change based on, for example, national borders, which are just arbitrary lines after all. Um, so that just all means that property just as money is not a creation of the state um, mm-hmm. and it, it shouldn't be portrayed as such. Uh, but on the other hand, like what does it mean to, to have the exclusive right to use something, right? If you are violated in that right. Um, and that is the combination of two kind of sacred principles within this uh, school of ethics. And that is, for one, the uh, the feminine aspect of non-aggression, meaning to not initiate aggressive force against the justly acquired property mm-hmm. uh, of an individual. Right? That is the the feminine. Right? Do not steal. The one single rule that uh, Rothbard proposes in this ethic and right? mm. respect the property of others. Mm. Um, but that goes hand in hand. It's the other side of the coin of the masculine principle of self-defense. If you do not have the right to take the property of someone else, then you do have the right to apply any force necessary, even to the point of lethal force, uh, to stop an individual to unjustly take the property from you. That defense, as the act is happening uh, in the here and now, is justly, uh, uh, absolute just and, and morally, uh, like recognized. Mm. But the problem of, are you morally justified to take defensive actions? And do you have the physical power to take defensive actions mm. are two very different questions. Right? Right. So just because you have a natural right to protect yourself against government thugs coming to steal taxes from you, does not mean that you actually have the power to persuade the military industrial complex to not blow you up. <laughs> and that's that's something to be considered. But um, ultimately, uh, if you have a property right definition that has been acknowledged by the local monopolist of, uh, of violence, then you have a much higher likelihood of having a peaceful and conflict-free use of your property rights, right? Um, yeah, because yeah. if if someone else would challenge you in your possession of those property rights, and that other person has the backing of the state and not you, yeah, and right, then all of a sudden you have that huge army knocking on your door, and that's not right. going to be comfortable. Right, right, right. So th- this is I love this topic because I cannot unravel it in my mind. So I'm glad we're digging into it. 
I love the way you put the non-aggression principle, which is at the bedrock of Rothbard's work as kind of the yin to the self-defense yang. I think that's a very interesting way to look at it. And so I want to ask this about property rights. So Peterson also has this great saying that every, every right is someone's responsibility. They also are two sides of the same coin. If you have the right to three meals a day, hypothetically, someone has the responsibility to provide those three meals a day, right? So, and this applies to everything that we call human rights. So my question about property rights is whose responsibility is that? It seems to me like it's inseparable from violence or the monopoly on violence, because even, even in the case of gravity, like gravity is enforced, right? We could say the enforcer is the law of physics, I suppose. But it seems to me that, that to have a truly effective property rights system, there has to be some outside enforcer that's resolving disputes, um, you know, basically making subjective arbitrary judgments about conflicts over property. So how do you, I, I hear you, like I hear that it's, it's, it's discoverable law. There's a deep principle here, but it seems like to, to root that back into physical reality requires an enforcer of some kind. Yeah. I, I think on the macro scale, uh, nature or the universe is the enforcer. Mm. Um, I, I think that this relationship is true that as the morality of a civilization declines, the freedom declines. And as the morality of a nation increases, its freedom increases. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a corollary relationship um, on the both micro scale as well as the macro scale. Um, so let's go through it through the, the micro scale. Like Rothbard proposes the one simple rule, do not steal. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's go through a thought experiment and break that rule consistently, right? And also, so let's go out and let's rape the child of our neighbor, right? and we're going to steal all the food from the local grocery store, and we're going to burn down the houses, uh, you know, and we're going to burn the books. And let's see how quickly we will be a successful individual in the evolutionary existence. Mm. <laughs> Let's put it like that. You're going to be an evolutionary mistake very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> right? So uh, I think even on individual level, just thinking through how it would be to continuously steal from others, you can instantly conjure up the most dreadful and horrific imagination and potential outcome that that might entail for you personally. Yeah. Right? And that you are ultimately responsible and that you will receive the consequences of these actions. Right. right? The, the father of the girl you raped will come after you. Yeah. Right? And there will be numerous consequences uh, and you will have to bear them and you cannot escape them. Right? right. This is true on the individual level. And I'm very much convinced that it is true on the collective level. Right. As more people ignore, uh, willfully ignore Right. Uh, although they have the information, they deliberately do not uh, use it in their understanding for towards truth. Um, when more people ignore the reality that property rights and freedoms and their individual sovereignty are, right, that they simply are a sovereign individual by the fact of their own existence, mm -hmm. even though they might not even know it. But the more you ignore it, 
uh, the more your sovereignty will be tyrannized and the more the collective prosperity and happiness of the entire economy, of the entire market participants uh, will be will be devastated. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen that numerous times uh, in history at scale, especially in the in the 20th century, that when stealing becomes the norm, uh, yeah. that the, the the utter complete collapse of so uh, civilization to the point of, of mass murder and yes. uh, well, cannibalism is the the uh, the, the inevitable conclusion. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, so this, that makes sense too. And I agree, the more moral a society becomes, the more freedom it exhibits. I'm not 100% sure if those things aren't reciprocally interacting though, because you might almost also say the more, you know, if we just as Bitcoiners said, okay, clearly a Bitcoin-based society would be way more free. So as a result, it would probably develop a more nonviolent morality, let's say. But I don't know if that's just some principle inherent to life we uncovered, or if that's because Bitcoin as a money is actually, it's a new variable in the, the logic of violence calculus occurring in every market actor's mind, right? Everyone's trying to basically meet their ends, right? It's means and ends. But if violence all of a sudden is not as useful of a means, say there's a much higher, a much worse cost benefit ratio to violence because Bitcoin can be stored in multi-sig and, you know, it's hard to steal all these things, then that would push people towards more productive behavior, I think. So it's see, like what I'm trying to get at here is there's this, I feel like there's this very practical element to the implementation of property and natural law that really Bitcoin, without Bitcoin, we're always going to be vulnerable to the state. <laughs> like so long as you want to occupy property and do all these things, there needs to be an enforcer on the outside. That enforcer is typically a monopolist. It's kind of a naturally monopolizing industry. As it grows old and rigid, it tends to kind of prey on, it seems like it starts to feed on itself. The state almost just feeds on property. You know, it's always trying to grow itself and that's why it monopolizes money and does all these other things. So without something like Bitcoin, a property that's independent of the monopoly on violence entirely, I feel like we'd just be stuck in this vicious cycle forever until whatever, maybe apocalyptic type situation. And you know, to your point about Rothbard saying that the individual that goes out and rapes and steals and does all these things, he's going to get blotted out pretty quickly from an evolutionary standpoint. I agree with that if an individual runs out and just does that thing spontaneously. But if you look at a dictator, someone that comes into power over the state apparatus, they can do that very thing directly or indirectly for decades, and they can still do really well from an evolutionary standpoint. Right? If you're, I think Genghis Khan, who was one of the most ruthless dictators there's ever been, sired like a, you know, you can trace the genealogy back and I don't know the exact number, 10 or 20% of the world population has some Genghis Khan in them. So we're like, there, there seems to be this inextricable relationship between our morality and property systems and the tech technological realities with which we can implement them. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> like I, uh, I'm just having I, I, a hard time accepting Rothbard's principle that like once you discover it, everyone will just accept it. There's some enforceability element to it. Um, 
Yes, no, I, I, I think that's 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 not a disagreement with Rothbard. Like, um, for for one, everyone has to kind of a, a, agree with you. That's 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 yes. Again, like this is conflict theory is fundamentally a social theory, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, we we need to somehow get into consensus here. But I or we we need to somehow get into agreement with some portion of other people. I don't think that we need to be in a hundred percent agreement. Um, I think that would actually be quite difficult. And um, it, I don't think that it's necessary because again, in the free society, there are numerous options available for every potential uh, solution to any potential problem, right? So uh, many ways to go about it and not just uh, in in potential in time, but also in space, right? Mm-hmm. So you you might have uh, disagreement of um, who did a crime, you know, based on locality, right? So um, and that will probably continue to be upheld, right? That it's so difficult to get into consensus on anything. Mm-hmm. Right? That's why Bitcoin is a bloody miracle that it actually mm-hmm. works. Right? Mm-hmm. But it's for sure an outlier to to the norm. Um, so I think relying, but yes, in any case, I, I agree to your point that current uh, monopolies of violence focus themselves on the alleviation of the conflict after the fact. Right. Mm-hmm. So someone goes around, rapes and murders and pillages, and then afterwards we put him in front of a jury and we condemn him and then he needs to pay retributions, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's good enough, right? Uh, that has that puts an opportunity cost to an attacker, right? That if he gets caught and if he gets um, uh, like processed in, in the criminal system, then he will... Uh, yeah, he, uh, he he has to pay some amount, right? Mm. So that will hopefully deter more people from not stealing from you in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but where something like, you know, castles come in, great technology, I love castles. <laughs> castles are not like, let's, you know, ask a jury and and uh, then afterwards tell him to please not invade, like that it was wrong that he invaded my uh, castle. Yeah. Uh, instead, build really, really, really big walls around your castle yes. and many high points advantages to shoot at the enemy. Yeah. Right? That if he ever dares to come, you're going to slap him really hard so that he doesn't come the next time. Right. right? And that he, he that he cannot even come to, to uh, taking the scarce resources that you have at your disposal. Now, but but even even that even with a successful defense where the attacker does not loot all of your goods, right? You still suffer the opportunity cost of all the man hours spent in producing the war machinery and and manning the army uh, and all the people who died, of course, in in the war efforts, right? So it's it's still a very costly endeavor uh, to have premature defense, so to say, mm-hmm. and. Now the question is of how costly is this? Because the more costly premature defense is, then it is less useful for, of course, smaller value uh, goods and items and and persons, right? If it costs you, I don't know, 100,000 Bitcoin to build your your big castle wall, I mean, nobody got 100,000 Bitcoin, right? So you you, you have to save a bunch before you get all that. uh, So... You know that's that's one thing, and 
the beauty of technology in general, but especially technologies of cyberspace and encryption and cryptography, right? They enable you to build defenses that are so cheap to generate, you know, in the in the milli sense of of uh, electricity produced and, and computational hardware, right? It, it trivially uh, cheap, but then to attempt to break the protections provided by the by the uh, algorithm is infinitely hard. Mm -hmm. right? So this is very cheap preemptive defense and very expensive uh, potential overcoming of the defensive mm -hmm. measures. Uh, and Bitcoin is, of course, the same as encryption is for money. Uh, encryption is for, for words. Bitcoin is now for money, mm -hmm. right? That it's incredibly cheap to receive Bitcoin. I, literally to receive it, it's basically nothing because the sender pays the cost in the first place. Yeah. But um, it, you know that's 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 just amazing. Um, and then to spend your Bitcoin, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Or rather, and to spend your Bitcoin, if you uh, actually know the secret to your private keys, it's still easy, right? Uh, but if you would want to spend the Bitcoin without knowing the secrets, without knowing the private keys. That's just literally impossible with how Bitcoin is is designed as a holistic system. And so Bitcoin is so powerful precisely because it, it addresses that area that you mentioned, that preemptive retributional justice is not good enough. Right. It it is it will always be reliant on the major on the support of the majority, a monopoly of violence. Uh, and it will always come at a massive opportunity cost of human time and life. Mm. Uh, and when you have the power to preemptively protect yourself, uh, especially when it's cheap to set up and mm. very expensive to break, mm. uh, then that's an, an all-out win. And it will help smaller value transactions and individuals to be protected. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of the old wisdom, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure type of thing. Um, yeah, that's a deep. I can't stop thinking about that from this book. Is like, how do you... I just don't feel like there is a way to construct a sustainable civilization absent Bitcoin. <laughs> if anything, this book has reinforced my bullishness on the... I mean, the, the indispensability of Bitcoin, frankly, for scaling human cooperation. Um, that's, that's the beautiful thing, that Bitcoin is powerful enough in its uh, architectural defenses that it can even stand up to the monopolist of violence. Yes. The biggest mafia guy on the block. Right. Right. Not just the United States government, but the Chinese government and all other corrupt governments in this world yes. are actively trying to as much as possibly end the Bitcoin system. Right. And they keep failing. Yes. <laughs> and that that is really what, what makes it so beautiful. That yes. it simply disregards the monopolist of power. Right uh, or of violence, you yes. have no power in this realm. Right. It. Yeah. The, another um, way I've been thinking lately is that players inside of a game, they're going to organize their strategies around the invariance, right? The things they can't control. So you could say that um, you know we talked about gravity earlier. Gravity is clearly an invariant. And all of life is trying to organize a strategy against gravity. You know, trees are growing towards the sun, birds are flying, we're going to the moon, whatever. 
um, in the socioeconomic sphere, historically, gold was at invariant. So it was like the thing that no one could really do anything about. It was selected as money because it was, and again, all the individual self-interest. But because gold, because of the economic properties of gold, there are advantages to centralizing it. So when you centralize it, you're actually enriching uh, and you're centralizing it and securing it. So you're enriching the monopoly on violence. So you're actually incentivizing violence in the world by really building your system on gold. And it gets way worse once you start abstracting that into layer two paper. And then it you break the link and it, you know, the violence just goes berserk like we're in today. So it seems to me like this, the that's another way to look at Bitcoin. It's like it's the emergence of a new invariant. You know, no one can change Bitcoin. So now everyone has to adapt their strategy to it at every scale. And it just, yeah, it's so, I, I just don't think human beings, I don't think as a species, we could evolve past politics and violence being the alpha and omega of human organization without Bitcoin. And that just blows my mind every time I think about it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's for sure a really big claim, right? kind of audacious to make. Um, <laughs> But uh, like I, and you know, as a, as a counterpoint, like Bitcoin is, is just a technology and mm. technology are worth nothing if not used by individuals. Yes. And if individuals don't perceive the problems that Bitcoin is designed to solve, and if those individuals don't have the courage mm. to even pick up Bitcoin as a black market tool to enable the liberty um, that they might only potentially want in the first place. I, uh, Bitcoin dies if nobody cares about freedom mm. uh, and it will be forgotten. Uh, so it, I, I, I'm afraid that the, the answer to freedom is never as easy as, hey, let's just all use this latest technology. I, I think that the, the struggle between good and evil, bet, between well, morally correct and, and wrong actions and, and behavior, uh, as Solzhenitsyn said, goes right through the heart of every mm. individual. Um, and that is as inherent to the nature and creation of men uh, as well anything is. Right? So, right. Uh, you know, to be honest, I, I would probably hate a world that or... I, 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 at least I cannot imagine a world where conflict would be entirely alleviated because that is just fundamentally not how the human condition is unfolding or manifesting to me right now. Yes. Like life is suffering on many levels. Mm -hmm. And if it no longer were suffering, then what would we do? I know you, as, mm. as Peterson says again, uh, you know, pick up the heaviest load that you can yes. bear to carry. Yes. Uh, and that's, I, I, that's, I think, a very, it, it rings very true. Mm. And I'm, so that's, that's why I'm not even sure if I would want to have a world where all the conflicts are solved, let alone if I think that Bitcoin is actually going to bring us to that point. Yes, I, I would should probably condition my phrase there that I don't think Bitcoin just ends violence. I just more currently we operate in the shadow of state violence, right? That is the invariant that controls most of our behavior. I just think more of human behavior will become self-directed 
because you will be more empowered, frankly. So the conflicts, it would go from large scale, semi-infrequent, but very disastrous conflicts like World War I, World War II to much smaller scale, localized, short duration conflicts. It's just like, like the free, this is a, the free market principle versus um, socialism, right? Where you, you're in a socialist society, you can delay volatility, but eventually the whole thing blows up, right? The plan just keeps diverging further and further from economic reality until it collapses. Whereas in free market capitalism, you have these constant errors getting corrected, little blowups here and there, little forest fires here and there instead of the big blaze. So um, that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't eliminate violence clearly, but it definitely changes the incentive structure and scale of violence related to violence. So exactly. Well, yes. And, and that's, you know, basically the, the thesis of the sovereign individual. Yes, book, exactly. Right? That, yeah. that, that strong encryption and a, a strongly encrypted monetary network uh, is, is very much changing the, the picture of the game. Yeah. Uh, like it's, 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 it's really crazy because yeah, um, Bitcoin replaces that concept of a, a state uh, protecting property rights as the monopolist of, of violence simply by you no know, math, property yes. rights being protected by computation, by, you yes. know, by, by, by cryptography um, and by individuals having, you know, secret knowledge. Um, right. Some some uh, some passphrase, so to say, um, and of course, you know, the 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 many incredibly fractal, crazy aspects that make Bitcoin possible. Um, but all of that together, it just it it works. Disregarding of uh, of the state and its its locational meat space boundaries, and that is yeah, it's 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 massively different. Uh, it it changes a a lot, but. Yeah, you know, to to be honest, I can very much see a world where nation states go crazy with all-out wars to actually conquer, uh, you know, Bitcoin wealth of others. Because mm. even though theft is not possible within the blockchain, mm. right? So every coin that was ever spent in the Bitcoin blockchain has a valid witness script. Mm. Right, a signature, a multi-signature, a hash pre-image, or whatever was defined, but not a single transaction in the in, in the blockchain sp spent a coin without having the explicit authorization to do so. Right, but that doesn't mean that the person who knew the private keys did voluntarily construct that message. Mm. Right? It 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 does not prove consent in the literal sense. Right, it only proves that. There was a person who knew a message and who had a private key. It does not mean that that person was not uh, uh, violated in his property rights, right? That he was he was not harassed by others. Um, so of course, right? The, that's the five dollar wrench strategy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So unfortunately, that does Bitcoin does not protect you from that. Right. right? Uh, so ultimately, as as long as you have the capability to spend your Bitcoin. Even mm -hmm. if that is in the most crazy inter-jurisdictional uh, arbitrage multi-sig, right? Um, as long as you have the capability of spending it, other people can apply force to you so that you spend the coin in the air, into the address that they want you to spend that in. Mm. Um, sure, if you don't want to, then Bitcoin will make it impossible for them to actually do that. 
but then you're dead. Uh, so of course, uh, that's that's the, the question. Uh, but on, on the other hand, right, then even if you refuse uh, to cooperate, and you actually end up dying, well, then the attacker doesn't get the private keys and, and still right. cannot spend the Bitcoin. So no potential upside. So again, it, it changes a lot in the nuances and the game theory and the incentive structures. right? And I do think that this will make a substantial and very meaningful impact in the logic of violence of, on, or the consequences of violence on the macro scale. It is still uh, uh, like up to question how much it will actually be impacted um, on the individual case-by-case basis. Uh, just right. because on, on the average, it's very not likely that your Bitcoin gets stolen. Uh, it might, of course, still be that you are uh, the outlier uh, breaking that, that rule. 